Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 282, How to Win Friends and Influence Jorvik. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Carol, Ellie, and Gretchen for signing up already. Athelstan had completed his annexation of Jorvik, and in doing so, he had outperformed every last one of his predecessors, including his grandfather, Alfred the Great. But there were a few loose ends that he still needed to knot up. And as he watched the defenses of Jorvik burn, and doled out Jorvik's wealth to his loyal men, two of those loose ends, namely his former rivals Guthrith and Turfred, slunk away with little more than their lives. They had managed to escape the stronghold and elude capture, but merely escaping wasn't exactly the plan for people who'd earlier sought to establish their own rule over the north. Furthermore, their escape wasn't Athelstan's plan either. I mean, he'd nearly had all of his careful diplomacy undone by just these two men. And Guthrif was a king of Dublin, and Turfred was a local noble of note. Either one of these men could reroute themselves and foment a rebellion if they were allowed to safely return to their homes. Athelstan would be a fool to just allow them to escape and ignore whatever they were up to once they fled their fortress. And he wasn't a fool. So once Athelstan realized that his enemies had made their escape, he sent his forces out to pursue them. We don't know how long a head start Guthrif and Turfred had, but they had at least long enough to acquire ships, somehow, and set sail in them. It was a clever move, because the pursuing forces would then have to acquire their own ships and figure out which way Guthrith and Turfrid were going. And the sea is pretty big. They could be going anywhere. Furthermore, being able to chase them on sea assumes that Athelstan's soldiers even knew how to sail. And sailing isn't a simple matter of just boarding a ship and pointing the rudder in the right direction. Sailing is a specific skill set, and if you don't have it, then a ship can be a rather dangerous place. Which is something that Turfred soon discovered. Because shortly after launching, he shipwrecked. And let's be honest, that was poor planning on Turfred's part. You don't get on a ship and not know what to do. Especially if you don't know how to swim. And he didn't know how to swim either. And standing on the shoreline, watching Turfred as he slipped under the waves, Athelstan's men probably thought, huh, that was easier than I thought it would be. So, one down. But Guthrif was another matter. Because before he was a king, he'd been a vikinger. He knew how to sail. And he probably knew how to swim too. So off he went. And we're not told the specifics of his flight. But we are told that he suffered on both land and sea, meaning that he might not have outright drowned like his co-conspirator, but he clearly couldn't catch a break. And after leading Athelstan's men on a lengthy chase, Guthrith eventually realized how hopeless his situation was, and he surrendered. And so now, Athelstan had a rival claimant to the north in his personal custody. And this was a man who had attempted to seize the very throne that Athelstan now held. But the fact remained that Guthrith was still a king of Dublin. He was nobility. 
And because Athelstan seemed to have had a strategic mind, not just a military one, he decided that he would treat Guthrith with the dignity of his station. So Athelstan's rival was brought to court, and he was granted the opportunity to plead for his life. And an agreement was offered. Guthrith would be allowed safe passage out of Britain, provided that he made an oath to never return. And Guthrith agreed. And then, after the bargain was struck, King Athelstan treated his former enemy to a feast. And this was a feast that lasted for four days. Now, if you want a refresher on what these feasts entailed, check out the food and drink episodes. But the short version is that these two kings, along with their retinues, got crunk as hell. And as fun as that image is, what we should really take away from this decision was that Athelstan was using all the tools at his disposal to obtain his goals. And not just the military ones. Here, Athelstan was skillfully reaching out to a mutual cultural thread to tie Guthrith and himself together. See, oaths and conversions have had limited success when it came to these Scandinavian warlords. After all, they were concepts that were culturally important to the Anglo-Saxons, but they didn't necessarily carry the same weight for the Northmen. Feasting, on the other hand, was a shared value. It was something that was understood by both the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavians, and it was an important bonding ritual for both of them. And honestly, feasting is still an important bonding ritual. Having dinner with the important people of your life is something that's relatable because we all do it. Western cultures still have major holidays that center around large shared meals, like Christmas and Thanksgiving in the U.S. and Canada. Many families gather on Sundays for lasagna or roasts or barbecue cookouts. And many friends now gather regularly for brunch as we form new urban families in a time where many of us no longer live in our hometowns. Feasting is bonding. And that actually ties into another important feature of these feasts. Because it wasn't just about the food. These feasts were also a medieval kegger. And getting shamefully plastered together has a long and storied history in diplomacy. In fact, in our recent history, just this kind of piss-up formed a major factor in World War II. And this story involves Churchill, because you know that any boozy story about World War II has to involve Churchill. So, in Christmas of 1941, Churchill came to visit FDR. And the story goes that during this visit, the two men bonded as they pounded liquor so hard that they irritated the bejesus out of the First Lady. And I would not want to earn Eleanor's wrath, but these late-night drinking sessions cemented the relationship, and thus the partnership between the U.S. and the U.K. Booze can have a weird and bonding effect on relationships, and upon history in general. And so by feasting with his former enemy, Athelstan wasn't just having dinner and drinks. He was wielding culture in a way to hopefully cement a lasting peace with the King of Dublin, and do it in a way that conversions and oaths had failed to do with some of the previous Scandinavian kings. And then, once they shook off their hangovers, Guthrith actually did what he promised, and he left Britain. But there was a small problem. The fact is that Guthrith only had one marketable skill set. And that meant that once he left Britain, he returned to the career that made him a king in the first place. He went a Viking. But, at least for the time being, 
he wasn't doing it in England. And so, with a new drinking buddy and a drowned enemy, two of Athelstan's loose ends were tied, at least for now. But then there was still the matter of the North. You see, what I didn't mention last episode was that when Athelstan met with King Constantine of Scotland and King Eugenius of Cumbria, and he received their submission, they weren't alone. We're also told that Elderman Adred of Bamborough submitted to King Athelstan at that meeting as well. And specifically naming an elderman in a meeting that is populated mostly by kings seems a little bit odd. And it is. Which is why this might be giving us a window into the political reality of the Northumbrian annexation. See, the thing is that Ildred's territory of Bamborough was politically and culturally important in the north. Bamborough had been a powerful political territory dating all the way back to the time of Ida. It was called Bebasburgh, which became Bamborough, because when it comes down to it, every single English town is slurred like you're trying to give directions to the next pub. And I don't think that's a coincidence. But the point is that Bamborough was important. It was also warlike. When Ragnald set out to conquer the north, it was the eldermen of Bamborough and the king of Scotland who fought against him. Bamborough was a big deal. And until now... No southern king had ruled over this proud and warlike region. And it seems that Athelstan was all too aware of the danger that northern resentment to his rule could pose. If this was going to work, he needed the support of the leading northern nobles. And with that in mind, suddenly the presence of an elderman at this council of kings makes perfect sense. Athelstan was paying attention to the political and cultural realities within Northumbria. He was playing the diplomat, as well as the conqueror. And in diplomacy, you have to give some in order to get more. And it is in this moment that we might have an answer to a question that is so big and obvious that most of us never think to ask it. Because for us, England has existed for so long that we forget that there was a time that there could have been anything else. But on occasion, I do get people writing in and asking the question. And the question is this, why is this country called England? Why not Saxonland? I mean, if the Saxons settled the South and the Angles settled the North, which is what Bede said, and if the House of Wessex, the West Saxons, formed England, why is it England, land of the Angles? Why isn't it Saxonland? When Athelstan signed his charters, why did he do it as Angolorum Rex? Since he was a West Saxon, why wasn't he signing his Saxonum Rex? It's a great question, and England very easily could have been named Saxonland. In fact, it kind of was, by a member of Athelstan's own court, a guy named Petrus. Now, Petrus was so impressed by the submission of the northern lords at Decor, Amont, that he wrote a praise poem about it. And interestingly, he doesn't talk about an Anglo-Saxon army or an Anglian army. Instead, he tells us that Athelstan's Saxon army moved all throughout Britain. And that wasn't an accident or an effort at simplifying the rhyme scheme. The Saxon nature of Athelstan and his soldiers is something that Petrus repeatedly returns to. And then he really hammers it home at the climax of the poem, proclaiming Ista Perfecta Saxonia, this Saxonland made whole. 
So at least according to the guy who wrote about the treaty and annexation, in conquering the North, they didn't create England. They created Saxonland. But it was Athelstan himself who seems to have chosen the title Anglorum Rex, the King of England. So you might be wondering why he did that. Well, we can't know for sure, because the justification for this choice was never written down. But there's a good argument for this being a very clever piece of cultural jujitsu. The truth is that Athelstan was facing a significant amount of political and cultural headwinds when he chose to rule over Northumbria. A southerner ruling the north simply wasn't done. But here he was. And honestly, if it was any other time, the local nobility probably would have aligned against him. But Northumbria had gone through a series of unlikely events that left Athelstan with a small window of opportunity. And one of these unlikely events was the fact that Northumbria wasn't even called Northumbria anymore. About nine years earlier, they'd been forcibly rebranded into Jorvik. And before that rebranding, things were very different. The Northumbrians had their own dynasties that stretched all the way back to the ancient kingdoms of Bernicia and Deira. These were Anglo-Saxon dynasties, Christian dynasties. And then the Northmen came. And the Northumbrians endured wave after wave of pagan invaders. And with the rise of King Ragnald, followed by his kinsman King Citric, the Northumbrians were now being ruled by openly pagan rulers from Dublin. Now their foreign nature, combined with the religious differences, might have been appreciated by the newer Scandinavian nobles that had been installed by Halfdan and others. But as for the pre-existing Northumbrian nobles... Well, the pagan and foreign nature of these new rulers didn't exactly endear them to the remaining Northumbrian nobles and clergy. And it wasn't like this new ruling class was making it easy on them. The Danes have been playing hardball, going so far as to even replace the kingdom's identity, making it the kingdom of Jorvik, virtually erasing the local people's ancient history and identity. And looking at the record, the reason why they did this doesn't seem like it was part of a religious war. The Danes really didn't come to fight a religious war. It's quite likely that these decisions were made entirely based on politics. But the fact is that what was happening here was still a massive cultural clash. And for many of the pre-existing Northumbrian nobles, this would have caused significant amounts of resentment. And this hornet's nest had been kicked only shortly before Athelstan and his army arrived. In a sense, Ragnald and Citric unwillingly did a lot of Athelstan's work for him. Because while Athelstan was a dirty foreigner, the Northumbrians were already being ruled by foreigners. And these foreigners weren't even from the island. They were from Dublin. And they were pagan to boot. In comparison to that, Athelstan didn't look all that bad. I mean, at least he was from the island, and he was Christian. And it wasn't just any kind of Christian. Right from the start, Athelstan worked tirelessly to tie his rule to the church. He was a famously pious king. And to those watching closely from the north, he even went one step farther. He wasn't just tying himself to the church. He was linking himself to St. Cuthbert, going so far as to turn Cuthbert into a sort of patron saint for the House of Wessex. Perhaps even intending to make Cuthbert a patron saint of England as a whole. That was a big deal, especially in Northumbria, because St. Cuthbert was a major Northumbrian saint. Athelstan was breaking from the policies of the last two West Saxon kings, 
and he was doing it in ways that would have made his rule very attractive to the Northumbrian nobles who had spent the last nine years under the rule of pagan Northmen from Dublin. It was clever, and I don't think it was an accident. But now that he had Jorvik in his hands, being able to say, hey, I'm a good Christian, unlike those pagans from Dublin, would only really get him so far. At a certain point, he had to make his own case, and he needed to move quickly if he was going to secure his right to rule. And to do that, it appears that Athelstan was attempting to establish a new identity to ease that transition. But he didn't tell the Northerners that they were all West Saxon now, and I think that was wise. The Northumbrians already knew who the West Saxons were. They fought plenty of wars against them. So to bring the Northumbrians on board, you couldn't just impose the identity of their enemies upon them which was what the Danes did. Instead, he had to reach higher and create a collective identity that included both the North and the South. And if you remember, this was actually a classic family trick. When Alfred sought to expand his influence, he spoke of the Anglo-Saxons, and his son Edward built upon that, declaring in charters that he was Anglorum Saxonum Rex. And so as Athelstan annexed Northumbria, he used those same tools. They would all be part of a single people, a single identity, forming a new polity. And if it were Edward who was doing this, I imagine that he would have declared that they were all part of the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons. But ultimately, the Anglo-Saxons was a southern idea created by the House of Wessex. So if Athelstan wanted to bring the Northumbrians on board, his best chance was to create a new national identity that signaled that the North was equal to the South, that they were all included and that Northumbria wasn't just going to be an auxiliary backwater that would be exploited to enhance the wealth of the South. He needed to emphasize that they were all on the same team. And that made the notion of the Anglo-Saxons a problem, because it was already branded to Wessex. And speaking of Wessex, there's another possible motivation for what Athelstan did. See, while Athelstan was currently king over Wessex, He had been repeatedly neglected and abused by the powerful figures of Wessex for nearly 30 years of his life. So I don't know how excited he'd be to elevate the kingdom that had caused him so many problems. And writing their name out might have been a delightful bit of strike back. But whatever the thought process was, the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons and the kingdom of Wessex were clearly non-starters. There was an older identity, though, one that had hundreds of years of history. And that meant he'd be able to point to it not as a new idea that he was creating, but rather as a reinstitution of an ancient Christian concept. And this idea, very conveniently, came from Northumbria by one of its most famous luminaries, the Venerable Bede. Bede wrote the Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, the ecclesiastical history of the English people. And in it, he told of the origins of the English. He wrote of how, during the migration, the Saxons settled in the south, the Anglians settled in the northeast, and the Jutes did their Jute thing on the Isle of Wight. And literate people in the north at the time of Athelstan, or nobles who had literate people in their courts, very well might have been acquainted with Bede's tales of how their forebears came to these lands. And the Northumbrians would have understood themselves to be people descended from the Angles. They were Anglorum. And Anglorum was the perfect solution. It was ancient, it was tied to a shared origin story, it was Christian, 
and it came from a famous figure from Northumbria. It was an early shared identity that very well might have been part of the cultural imaginary of the literate minds of the North. And so here we are, after hundreds of years of languishing in the background, Bede's collective idea is finally being made into a reality, thanks to the careful work of multiple generations of West Saxon monarchs. Who could have guessed that? Now, I should be clear that there's a lot going on here that we can't see. Furthermore, our biases make this feel a lot bigger than it might have been. I mean, the selection of Anglorum Rex, the king of the English, feels like a weighty moment because we know that it's an identity that's going to last for a thousand years. But Athelstan didn't know that. It's possible that this was just a minor issue for him, and he didn't think all that much about it. And critically, Athelstan doesn't tell us why he refused to adopt Petrus's concept of Saxonia, nor does he tell us why he eliminated the Saxonum portion of the title that he inherited from his father, Anglorum Saxonum Rex. So all we can do here is theorize. But looking at the evidence, I do think that it's most likely that this was an intentional effort on the part of Athelstan to bind Northumbria to his rule. And I think this because of choices like that feast with King Guthfrith, King Athelstan seems to have had the kind of cultural and diplomatic savvy and the kind of imagination to use cultural and psychological tools in a way that cemented his soft power and created allies. And I see a potential parallel between the feast with Guthrith and the selection of Anglorum Rex, because in both cases, Athelstan was wielding culture in a way that would show his potential rivals respect, soothe any hurt feelings in a way that would make them feel like the king saw them as worthy and also establish a common cause with them. It's something that we've seen from him time and time again. Take as an example the way Athelstan handled the looting of the Keep of Jorvik. It might have seemed like a minor point, but by sharing out the booty with his followers and doing so in the view of the people of Jorvik was a remarkably clever move in the context of the cultures that he was moving among. The sharing of loot was the main method in which Viking captains maintained the loyalty of their followers. And thanks to years of migrations, Jorvik had a large number of Scandinavians within it. So sharing out the treasure was probably just a happy surprise for many within his army. But for the people of Jorvik who were watching, especially the Scandinavians, this was a signal that Athelstan would rule in a manner that they'd recognize. And as far as I can tell from the record, Athelstan understood the gears and levers that made society work and he knew how and when to pull them. I mean, everything from the saint that he chose to revere, to the scholar he chose to reach back to when constructing a collective identity, to the way that he handled the booty he seized in war, all of it seems like it was calculated to speak to the people of the newly conquered territory of Northumbria. And so I'd be very surprised if that identity, that new political body he was forming, was just chosen haphazardly. Instead, I suspect that when he declared himself Anglorum Rex, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he was speaking to a very specific audience when he did it. These cultural influences are always ticking away in the background. They're always there, even though they don't often get the spotlight. I mean, when people ask, why is it England and not Saxonland, I imagine that they want to hear of a battle, some sort of big event where the Angles defeat the Saxons, and I'm guessing they want to hear it that way because that's how history is often taught. 
But these cultural matters that are operating under the surface are just as important, if not more important, than the epic battles that make for good TV. They're also why I'm not surprised that we don't have accounts of battles accompanying the conquest of Northumbria. Because from where I'm sitting, Athelstan's main battlefield was cultural. And Athelstan was a master of that particular method of war. And rather than through a feat of arms, it was with that skill of diplomacy and respect that he managed to take people who hailed from different cultures, spoke different languages, and practiced different religions and create the English. All right, you might have noticed that these episodes are getting a bit longer. That's because I'm trying to blend historic events and cultural developments together into single episodes, because I feel like that's going to give you a better sense of the whole picture. But that means that they're more difficult and time-consuming to produce. Basically, I need time to catch up on research for the next phase, and also to catch up on the members' episodes that I want to work on and that the members have been patiently waiting for. So, this is a long way of saying there's going to be no new episode next week, but I'll be back in the following week. Thanks for listening.